can everybody hear me back there? I've got a loud voice and I know it, so. <laughs> Hi, I'm Gab. And no, I'm not Dave. Uh, there is no misspelling in my name. I've been asked that before. <laughs> uh, I want to say thank you for inviting me here today. It's really a great pleasure to see some friendly faces, and I know there's only one person in the audience that knows my story, so I have to be honest, I brought her with me. <laughs> um, I guess I better start at the beginning. Uh, I was born and raised in San Francisco, and there was no alcoholism in my family then. When I was eight years old, my parents and my grandparents went together and bought a house in San Francisco, and we lived together, my parents, my brother and I, and my two grandparents. Uh, now I have to skip ahead because the rest is a blank. At the time, it was a blank. Um, as I was growing up, I remember feeling um, inadequate. I remember feeling less than. I remember feeling that I couldn't live up to uh, whatever was expected of me. I felt responsible for the world. I felt that um, I didn't fit in. Now, if that doesn't describe coming up in an alcoholic home, I don't know what does. <clears throat> but I didn't know it then. Uh, when I met my husband, he kind of swept me off my feet, and the reason he did that is growing up I was very shy, which is kind of hard to understand today that I was, uh, and I was especially shy around men or boys because my brother was younger, and he was the brat that just tagged along. And all I had him to compare with was my grandfather that all he did was berate me. It was my fault that the roof leaked. It was my fault that the toilets got plugged. You name it, it was my fault. And uh, my grandmother and mother had a relationship that today I recognize is not healthy. But at the time, I always tried to fit in. My grandmother was very, um, very loving and a very sick woman. At the time, I didn't know she was sick. My grandmother was very possessive of my mother, and my mother's friends were my grandmother's friends, and my grandmother hardly had any friends of her own. She kind of adopted my mother's. When I was 18, my father got transferred back east, and I was forced to go, which I didn't want to, and I fought terribly to stay in California. But um, I was finally coerced into going back, and that was very painful at the time. Um, I did go back, and I stayed there nine months, and I was going to the University of Maryland at the time. And during that year, that nine months that I was gone, my grandfather died. That next summer, I was to go back to, or come back to California to work at a Girl Scout camp. I was a camp counselor. And I came back, and before that summer was over, I was, my mother asked me if I wanted to live with my grandmother. Boy, I jumped at the chance. I hated it back east. Couldn't stand Maryland. I couldn't stand the snow. We lived outside of Washington, D.C., and I couldn't, I didn't like it. So I was delighted to come back to California. 
Well, living with my, at the time, my grandmother and I were living together. My cousin also lived with us, and she was an unwed mother, and we had her daughter with us, too. And it was really an uh, interesting experience because my grandmother and my cousin didn't know how to say no to this baby. And I always jokingly say that this child, who is now married and is 26 years old, um, that I'm part of her mother, too, because I started telling her no. I was 19 years old, had never really been around babies very much, and I'm mothering this child. <laughs> and uh, we do have a very special relationship today. But anyway, um, after my cousin married and moved out, my grandmother's behavior became very strange. She started locking the front door in the daytime. Now, we lived out by San Francisco State in a very nice neighborhood then. And uh, I thought it was kind of unusual that we had to lock and bolt the front door during the daytime. Now, she didn't do this when I was home, but she did. I had a, a weekend job, and I had to leave for work at 6 o'clock in the morning, and I got back about 3.30, and I used my key to come in, and the bolt was on, and I couldn't, it was a chain, and I couldn't get in, and I used to get so angry at this woman because she had bolted the door and chained it so I couldn't even get in the house. Now, looking back at it from today's perspective, my anger was unreasonable. My rage, it wasn't just anger, it was rage. Um, the pattern of life had changed, and I didn't like the change, and so I was reacting. During this time, um, my parents and my brother were still back east, and my grandmother and I lived together by ourselves for two years, and my grandmother was slowly <clears throat> getting more and more neurotic without my mother being around, and her behavior was getting more bizarre. She, would, uh, she was adopting my friends as her own. She still didn't have any of her own friends. And uh, I kind of resented it a little bit. I was still young. I was still in my teens. Um, I started working at this hotel, and I was a checker cashier. I don't know if anybody knows what that is. It's the, you know, when you go to a restaurant, and instead of having the prices written in, it's done by a machine. Well, I'm the one that used to put it on the machine and the check part of the job was I was supposed to check the places they went out of the kitchen to make sure every item was on the tray or whatever for room service or the dining room or whatever. And I worked there for four years and I worked with waiters and with waitresses. And when I got an education, um, the waitresses were worse as far as their language. They used the F word every other sentence when they were in the kitchen and then they had to be very nice outside because I worked in a Class A hotel which was kind of like the Fairmont. And so they couldn't talk like that outside, but they could talk like that in the kitchen. So we'd have that going on in the kitchen, as well as the waiters when they come on, because they work nights and the waitresses work days. And um, I got a very good education as far as language, as far as um, the races. I'm sure we had a bookie working in the hotel. <laughs> I don't know. And I was young and I was an impressionable, but I was very naive, too, so it was a nice education in some ways. Uh, while I was working there, I met my husband at a wedding reception, and uh, he took me, uh, from the reception, he took me to dinner, and I think we drank two pots of coffee at this restaurant, and of course, when I got home from this date, uh, I couldn't sleep that night from all the caffeine that we'd been drinking, and I thought, oh, he's interesting, he'll call. Well, it took him like two months to call for a date, 
And I didn't date much through school, and I didn't date much. I was too busy going to school and working, and so I didn't have much experience as far as dating was concerned. And so I didn't uh, get the signs that his behavior was a little erratic. Um, I remember after, and then we had our first date. He took me out on uh, 4th of July, and we were going to go to Lake Merritt in Oakland and watch the fireworks. And it should have been a clue right then and there, but it wasn't. Our date included salami sandwiches from a deli as we sat on the lawn overlooking Lake Merritt, and he had brought two guys that had just come in from England. This was our, really our first date. The fireworks never happened. We still to this day have no idea what happened to the supposed fireworks over Lake Merritt because they never were. And uh, it took him two more months to call me back for a date. And I didn't think too much about it and went on with my life. In fact, I'd forgotten about him, and then he called me again, and then from there on we started dating, and then we started getting serious, and we dated about a year, and then we got married. And uh, my husband had been on his own since high school. He had been out on his own for 11 years. He had never lived with anybody during those 11 years except for an occasional roommate or the Navy. And so when we got married, it was like uh, the War of the Clampets, him on one side and me on the other. We fought over real serious things like what vegetable are we going to have for dinner? Uh, why didn't he call when he was going to be late? One night I remember we hadn't been married a year, and I remember he didn't come home, he didn't come home, and he didn't come home. And I, I was getting mad. And I remember feeling relief when he walked in the door, and I just started crying. And he, of course, wanted to know what ha- what was wrong. And I, you know, I started in on why didn't you call, blah, 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 blah. Of course, the reason he had uh, not called was because um, he'd been out drinking with the guys. And I didn't know it. I denied the whole thing. And I went out and I partied with him just as hard as he did. But I, there was a difference between his drinking and mine. When I had enough, I could quit. And he couldn't. But we had been married 11 years. We'd had a son by this time. Or I'm back, let me back up. We bought a house first. And uh, we decided to have a baby. Because when we got married, I, decided, I told him that I wanted a, my firstborn before I turned 30. Well, I was 29 for only about three months before I had my 30th birthday when I had my first boy. For my first child. I only have one boy. Anyway, uh, while we were living in this house, we just happened to have some next-door neighbors that uh, had a little problem. You can imagine what that problem is. And uh, I blamed them for my husband's inability to say no. I blamed her because she'd offered him one more drink. I blamed her because she couldn't not see that I needed him home to eat dinner. It got so bad I didn't used to go over next door, and he would be sitting, and they'd sit in the kitchen, and I could see him through the patio. And I could see them sitting there drinking, laughing and having a good time, and I'd be next door waiting for him to come home for dinner. Then I'd call over there and talk to her to tell him to come home. 
Well, this went on for a while, and uh, we had the baby, and I had, was fortunate to have a very healthy little boy. And uh, during that time that I was pregnant, uh, we had a crisis. During that time, I, uh, before I got pregnant, uh, my mother had had some bad health and had had surgery and was recovering from the surgery. And then all of a sudden, she seemed to have a breakdown and what was wrong? Well, it turned out my mother had a slight stroke and my mother was like 52 years old at the time and we're going, why did she have a stroke? Well, they found out that my mother had a brain tumor. That caused the stroke. Then we had to go through the whole test and find out well about this whole thing, and it turned out my mother had cancer. And the doctors gave us this prognosis that it was supposed to be slow growing, it was very curable, and blah, 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 blah. And that after radiation and all of this and the dilantin that she had to take as an anticonvulsant because they had done this biopsy and they needed to do it because she could go into seizures, uh, that she was, you know, the prognosis was that she was going to get well. Well, needless to say, that did not happen. The tumor was fast growing. It was not slow growing. Uh, my mother had been going through treatments, and all of a sudden she had a very bad seizure. And we were given a choice um, at one point whether to um, go take chemotherapy or let her die because we were given if she didn't have chemotherapy, she'd be dead in 10 days. And... My mother, I remember my mother saying, when she was still cognizant and this first, the tumor first came about, was that if it was going to be life-threatening, she didn't want to be put on any life-saving medication, and that uh, she just wanted to be left in peace. Well, we couldn't do that. I hate to tell you the guilt that I have felt over the years over giving my mother chemo when she didn't want it. And it was a good decision, it wasn't just mine, but I still feel guilt. Uh, my mother has been dead 15 years, and it still hurts. Uh, anyway, I was pregnant during all of this time, and of course I had problems with the pregnancy. You know, my husband didn't want to go to the hospital because he couldn't stand being around sick people. And I was working in, in San Francisco, I was pregnant, I had high blood pressure, I was retaining water, I was bloating up like a balloon, I was gaining weight. It was the year of the drought and uh, I was retaining salt because the water had so much salt, we were getting the water from the Delta. And the water table was low and so we were picking up a lot of salt. So I had to pack water from San Francisco to Concord every week so that I had drinking water and cooking water. And it was a t terribly trying time. And uh, while I was on maternity leave, my son was a month old when my mother died. My reaction was the only prayers that I made during that time was that I prayed to God to make my mother well. He didn't do it, and I got mad. I didn't know it then, but that's exactly what happened. I got very angry with God for not uh, answering my prayers. Anyway, um, with the son, we had uh, gone on. My husband is still drinking. I'm still in total denial. Every once in a while, we'd have an argument that I think he drank a little bit too much. 
and then that would pass and everything would be alright for a while. Now my husband was uh, a da- not a daily drinker because he didn't drink on weekends. He just drank during the week. And uh, I didn't think anything wrong with that. It didn't seem to bother me. And uh, we went on that way for quite a few years. We decided after my son was about three years old to try and have another child, which I did in 1980. Had a little girl this time. During that pregnancy, my husband had the opportunity to be transferred to Sacramento. And I jumped at it. Now, I had a really high-paying job, full of responsibilities, and um, my title was an executive secretary, but I was more like an executive assistant. And I had a lot of responsibility, and I did a damn good job. And I tried to transfer to Sacramento and couldn't. They didn't have any openings. And so then I quit working. Boy, was that a mistake. Here I had two little kids. I had a husband who was still drinking. And I was home. With nothing to do in that house. I had the TV going all day. Most of the time I didn't even pull the drapes to see the sunshine. The only time I went to the grocery store was when the baby needed formula or diapers. Or if we were totally out of food. And then it got so bad that I'd have to go with my daughter's godmother because I couldn't handle the two kids in the grocery store. Uh, I got to be a real sick lady. Really, really sick. My self-esteem was out the door because my self-esteem was from my job. I no longer had my job. So I no longer had my self-esteem. And on the home front, my husband, husband was not physically abusive, but he was verbally abusive. And he would get me like, uh, well, you're not working, so I don't know why we need. Every dime I spent on clothes, which I didn't do for myself. Now, this is the martyr in me. I didn't buy clothes for me. I bought clothes for him. I bought clothes for my son. I bought clothes for the baby. But I didn't deserve clothes, so I didn't buy any for me. So I I was one of those Al-Anons that had the holy underwear when you go to your first meeting. You know, the elastic worn. <laughs> the cross is about rotted out from using bleach. You know those? <laughs> That was me. I had not been to a dentist. I had not been to a doctor. I had not had my eyes checked. The whole routine. I was not worth it. Well, in 1981, that must have been, I was called back to the company that I worked for to come down and do vacation relief, which I did do. They asked if I could come down and relieve my son's godmother at her job for two weeks while she was on vacation. And I said, sure, because it meant that I was earning some money. So I went down. I hadn't been on the job more than two days, and I got a phone call from my husband saying, they called me into the office, they say I'm an alcoholic, and they want me to go into treatment. What do you think? Well, it was like a light bulb went off. Because I no more thought about what alcoholism was than the man in the moon. I know I didn't think my husband had a problem. Now, I remember when I was working, we had um, an alcoholism program in my company, and everybody had, it was mandatory, we all had to come to this meeting and, and listen to this guy from AA 
Well, he didn't say he was from AA, but uh, he worked for the company and he said he was an alcoholic. Now I know today he was a member of AA, but he didn't say it. Anyway, he told about Alan and he told about the, the, the program that the company had that uh, supported the wives and got whatever into treatment. Well, it went in one ear and out the other. So when my husband said, they say I'm an alcoholic, what do you think? I said, well, I think maybe they're right. And I said, considering how many years you have with that company, you'd be stupid not to take advantage of the treatment. They were willing to pay for the whole thing. So my husband went into treatment while I was still in San Francisco. Now, I still had a week and a half to go working. So my husband went into treatment, and I came back up two weeks later and found out that there was family counseling. I found out they wanted to see me. Now, why did they want to see me? I didn't have a problem. Well, the counselors took one look at me and said, you will go to Al-Anon. And I said, I try. And he said, no, you will not try. Try is no longer in the English vocabulary for you. You will go. And I said, I'll try. I kept using that word. Finally, I told him I would. So I went to one meeting. And it was a Sunday night meeting in Roseville. And I went to that meeting, and I walked into the doors, and I, don't, I can't describe what I felt. I felt included, which I'd never felt in my entire life. I felt that I belonged. And I felt something strange because the meeting hadn't even started. I felt love in the room. So I remember uh, my first meeting at our in our area, they ask the newcomers to speak if they wish at the end and they call on you. I don't know if you do that up here or down here, I should say. But uh, my major concern that, that night was uh, he told me I have to do his laundry, do I, while he's in treatment? Big, heavy problem, right? <laughs> well, it was to me at the time. Remember, I wasn't sick. There was nothing wrong with me. And somebody got me after the meeting and said, no, you don't have to do his laundry while he's in treatment. He's a big boy. He can do that himself. And then I didn't believe them, so I went to the counselor, called the counselor at the facility he was in. And I said, well, he wants to do his laundry when he comes home for his task. Do I have to do it? He said, no. There's washing machines and dryers here. He, that's what they're there for. They're supposed to do their own while they're here. And I said, okay. Well, then I had to turn around and tell my husband I was not going to do his laundry. And so I did, but I did it on the phone. I was not brave enough to do it in person. And I told him, and he did his laundry when he came home. He didn't do it there. He brought it home, and he did it at home. But he did it, not me. Well, he still doesn't do it. I do his laundry now, but I'm crying for the day that he'll do it, but i am got my serious doubts. <laughs> anyway, at that point in our marriage, we've been married 11 years. And... Uh, they told me in, in treatment, while he was in treatment, that if I didn't go to Al-Anon and he was in AA, that our marriage would end in divorce because one of us would grow and the other would, wouldn't. Well, I didn't want a divorce, so I was going to go to Al-Anon, which I did do. And I did go to one meeting a week for a while, but boy, I got out of there fast. I didn't hang around after that meeting. I got out of there. They wanted me home. So... <clears throat> then I got to where I go, I found a day meeting that had babysitting. And I felt, I remember feeling so trapped with these two little kids. 
And I remember before Al-Anon, and I'm not proud of this, but it's part of my story. I remember my son did something really major like spilling milk. I think that's what he did. And I got angry and I started spanking him. And I remember I had to give up, but in my mind I wanted to continue spanking that child. He was three years old and all he had done was spill milk. I had so much rage that I wanted to physically beat that kid. And the only thing that stopped me was the fact that I didn't have strength in my arms to do it. I knew there was something wrong with me then because I could, before that I could not imagine anybody, what kind of emotional state anybody would have to be to beat their own kid. Well, I found out. And now today I know that I wasn't even angry at him. I was angry at the alcoholic. But I took it out on him. That poor boy, I took a lot out on him. My daughter was a baby. My daughter didn't get any of that treatment. I took it out on my son. All my anger and rage over everything that the alcoholic had done, I took out on my son. I'm not proud of that fact. But that's part of my story. Now, after my husband got into treatment and I got into Al-Anon, I started going to a couple meetings more a week. I got a phone call from my father. I don't think I had a year in the program. I still did not have a sponsor. Because I'm also full of self-will and very full of pride. And I'm going to do it myself. The steps looked easy. I didn't need a sponsor. I didn't need one of your you to tell me how to do it and I didn't need your help I was going to do it all on my own it's called self-will run riot it took me 11 months to ask someone to be my sponsor and one of the things that it took was that phone call from my father my father called to tell me that he had cancer thank God it was a Wednesday morning because Wednesdays was the day that I had a meeting He called me before 8 o'clock because he was calling long distance to tell me he had cancer of the liver liver, and there was no prognosis for recovery. I have to remember that uh, I didn't have any tools when I was going through this with my mother. And I felt fear. God, did I feel afraid. I couldn't go through it again. But this time I had Alan. God, I went to so many meetings. During that time I found out that I was grieving for two people. My mother and my father. And for me, three. It was so painful. And I didn't have a sponsor at that time. But it hurt so bad I couldn't talk. And I was so mad at God that I couldn't ask for help. And I'd go to meetings and they'd tell me, find a higher power. And if you have trouble with God, find something else. Someone suggested a tree. I I tried that. The tree didn't talk back and I got no answers. So I knew I had to try something else. So then I used the group. Whatever group I went to, I didn't care. 
I went to the group and I used you. The pain finally got so bad, I finally had to drop to my knees and pray to God. I finally had to admit that God was there for me. And God, I didn't want to do that. It hurt so bad. My husband still tells me today that uh, I go, I, I read till I go to sleep, so I have to think. And my husband would tell me the next morning. In fact, he didn't do that. I'm sorry. He told me later, after it was all over, that he'd wake up and I was sobbing in my sleep because I couldn't let you see me cry. I couldn't let you see me in pain. That's that self-will. I couldn't show you my pain. I hurt so bad I couldn't talk because then I'd cry and I can't cry and talk at the same time. I still have trouble. I can cry when you talk and I'm in the audience. I have no trouble doing that. But when I'm trying to talk, I can't cry. I'm better at that today than I used to be. But anyway, uh, a higher power family came to my life and then I had to turn and find out Okay, I had it. What do I do with it? What do I do with this higher power that I'm calling God now? I had to learn to trust that higher power. Because when higher power got to be the last place I went instead of the first for a solution. Now, I had to go in for some very minor surgery. I had to have a... It turned out it was an old cyst removed off my arm. And you know they tell you to take an outline with you whenever you're facing something of an ordeal? I didn't. And here I've lost two parents to cancer and decided I could handle this. It was just minor. I was just going to be given a shot in the arm and he'd take this off and then I'd go on my merry way. But I've got another thing that I'm very good at. It's called projection. <laughs> you know what that is, everybody? I'm sure you do. I can work out a scenario that could put good novels to shame. And um, I had myself having cancer, treatment, and dying all within the space of five minutes on the way to the doctor, right? Well, it turned out it was just scar tissue from a cyst. And then I was talking to Alan on afterwards, and I said, why didn't you call? We would have gone with you. That didn't occur to me. It didn't occur to me to do that. I no more thought about calling an Al-Anon to ask her to go with me than the man in the moon. Today I know better than I didn't. I think from there, working in the, the program, remember I was trying to do this by myself. I, even after I had a sponsor, I didn't use it for quite a while. I got so I called her every day to talk. And it finally got to where I was using her a little bit. Now, I have a lot of intelligence, and I have a lot of um, common sense in everything but for myself. My problem was that I picked a very nice lady for a sponsor, and I picked one very kind and gentle, and I love her today dearly. But what I needed was somebody to bump me over the head and kick me in the butt, and I didn't do it. I didn't do that. 
Now, she and I were had a sponsor-sponsory relationship for a long time, even though I realized she was too soft. <laughs> you can tell I don't like change, right? And uh, she'd ask me every once in a while, maybe once a year, how I was doing with the steps. Uh, and I'd say, oh, fine. Everything was fine. And then I'd call her with a problem. She'd say, it sounds like you need to work first step. And my problem always centered around my son. Now, my, my relationship with my husband, the communication was open, a lot better than it was. Um, after three years of AA, he decided that he didn't need AA anymore. He didn't identify with any of their problems. My husband had never lost anything in drinking, not a thing. He didn't lose a job. He didn't lose a wife. He didn't lose any possessions, nothing. He didn't have a horror story to tell. So he didn't identify with what went on in those meetings. He started having problems in his job after sobriety. I suggested that he go to an Al-Anon meeting. And uh, he thought about it. And I said, I'll go with you. You want to go to an Al-Anon meeting? Well, sounds like a good idea. And I said, well, are you uncomfortable with me going with you? And he says, no. I said, would you be more comfortable if you went with my sponsor? He said, yeah. So I called up my sponsor and said, my husband would like to go to an AA meeting, but he'd like you to go with him. Will you do it? She said, sure. So my sponsor and my husband went to an Alamo meeting. After the meeting, I asked him how he liked it, and he said it was very interesting, and I don't think he's been to one since. <laughs> but that's okay. That's him. Uh, my husband... Um, Continued having problems with his job. And finally, and I had problems with him having problems with his job. You know how that goes? Called not minding my own business. I was taking his business and making it my problem, and I was suing over it more than he was. I was so scared that he'd quit his job or get fired from his job, and, oh, God, what would we do for financially with these two little kids? How would, we, how would we be provided for, and so on and so forth. And I took that personally. Well, it took me about two years to work through that, to finally decide that that was not my problem. I remember talking about it at a meeting, saying that I'd finally let go of it. Somebody that from my morning meeting was at the night meeting, and she said, if you were over, you still wouldn't be talking about it. Well, she was right. She was right. So I finally had to let that go and finally detach from that, but it took me about two years. Finally, I got to the point where he was talking about his job one more time, and I said, if you're that unhappy, why don't you quit? If they're giving you that bad of a time, why don't you leave? And he said, really? And I said, yeah. Within three days, he'd worked out a settlement with the company, and he was out of there. He was he called what they call headhunters. I don't know if you guys know what those are. That's like job recruiters. He called a headhunter, and by the end of that week, he had another job. And my biggest fear about him not being employed was what was happening next door to my neighbor whose husband had quit his job. He was out of work for six months and was driving her crazy. And I didn't work, and I didn't want my husband around all that time. 
And so it turned out he took two weeks off and started work. He took like a two-week vacation. It was great. Plus, we had all the severance pay from the other one. So my financial worries were taken care of by my higher power. I didn't have to worry about it. The next thing that happened while my father was sick, um, my mother's mother was still alive. And when we found out about my dad, and there was my grandmother, and my brother lived in the area, but my brother is younger, and he's not that much in the family, and we were afraid that he was not going to take care of my grandmother. So we moved her up to Sacramento. And she lived with me for 10 days while I was in the program before we moved her into Escocon, which is a retirement facility. Now, this, by this time, my grandmother... Um, was really in pretty bad shape. After my mother died, she never did accept the fact that my mother was sick. And she wouldn't go in the room and help us take care of her because my mother was okay. It was total denial about the disease. They say that, you know, alcoholism is an insidious disease, so is cancer. And you still have the same denial that you have an alcoholism of cancer. It's still there, and it's so hard to sit with the truth. And it's just as big of a killer. You know, it's um, a horrible disease, too. But anyway, while we were nursing my mother at home, and after my mother died, my grandmother really started going downhill. She started drinking, which was a real lot of fun. And uh, to see this 78, 80-year-old woman looped to the gills was not a real nice thing to see. My father had asked her at one point if she quit drinking because he didn't like it. And you know she did. That really surprised me. She did quit drinking. Now, after we moved my grandmother up here, my grandmother started her old tricks in my house with the drapes <laughs> and the doors. And I had little kids running in and out all day playing, and every time they'd turn around, the door was locked. You know, and they didn't like that. I didn't like it either. And I didn't like her playing with my drapes. And there was that old rage again at my grandmother. And, you know, it was... Uh, I felt guilty for being angry with her. Very guilty. Well, my grandmother was in Escaton for about 10 days, and she got incontinent. And I had to take her to the doctor, and it turned out she had congestive heart failure. So we ended up having her in a nursing home instead of in a retirement home. So my grandmother was there five years, and in that five years... Um, I was in charge of her finances. I was in charge of my father's because I was the executrix of his will. And I was also secretary or treasurer to two Alamon groups. At that point, between my own checkbook and theirs, I had five checkbooks. And if you don't talk about, poof, I didn't like it. I resigned from being treasurer. My husband, after a year, ended up having to take over both my grandmother and, and the uh, estate because I couldn't handle it. I mean, I still had to sign all the checks and do all of that, but he had to handle all the paperwork because I couldn't handle it. I was emotionally worn out. I couldn't take any more. Not one more thing. We had, uh, at that time, I, see, I think my grandmother was in the nursing home for about four years, and it got to the point where I couldn't visit her anymore. That woman had been in my life since she was my age, and I'm 45. She was a grandmother at 45. 
and she was in my life from that time. We had a very special relationship. And it was so hard for me to see a woman that couldn't carry on a conversation. You'd be talking to her and she'd be screaming for the nurse. My kids were uncomfortable going. I was uncomfortable going because all it did was agitate her. So I quit going. I quit going. For her as well as for myself. And I tried not to feel guilty about it. It was something that I could no longer do. I would call and check on her. I made sure that she had everything that she needed. But it upset her too much for me to go. And it got to the point where it upset me so much to see her the way she was because I remember a woman that graduated from Stanford and had her teaching credential at 20. And who had lost the ability to communicate. It hurt too much. So my grandmother also had emphysema and ended up dying of pneumonia because we had regular yearly bouts with pneumonia. And this last time was just too much. Her lungs couldn't take it anymore. And the antibiotics didn't work. So I received a phone call. I talked to the doctor. And with the doctor's advice, it was advised that I not go to the hospital to see her. For me. I told him my history with my parents. And I told him about my grandmother. And he says, don't come. And I said, okay. Now, once in a while I think about it, and once in a while I have regrets, but not very often. Uh, I know that, uh, I remember one time, I used to be very insensitive, I guess, I guess you could call it. I remember one time I was about probably 18 or 19, and I walked into the house, and I had my purse and my books or whatever I was doing at the time, out of the corner of my eye, I could see my grandmother in the room falling down. And I kept walking. And then I, when I got to the foyer type thing in the house, I stopped and I turned around and said, it's like it, it happened, but I didn't see it. I didn't react. And my grandmother couldn't understand why I didn't react immediately. Well, it was like a time capsule type thing. You know, it was there, but yet it wasn't there. So when I went back to help her up, I said, Grandma, are you all right? Did you fall? And she says, you saw me fall. Well, I know I saw her fall, but I couldn't react to it at that time. And I don't know why, but I couldn't. Maybe that's one of my character flaws. I don't know. Today I know I react when something like that happens. I've got two kids. I remember one time my husband fell off a ladder, and you'd think that uh, he'd had a massive heart attack. (laughs) So maybe it was just teens, and I don't know. But anyway... I remember doing that. I know it's changed today. I know my life has changed today. Uh, trying to bring you up to the future. Now, I used to say that I had 10 years in the program and my husband has not had a drink in 10 years. I found out a couple of months ago that that's not true. My husband uh, and I went out to dinner while my kids were away this summer. And they didn't have any non-alcoholic beer. And so he asked for a Zasecki, and my mouth went to the floor. And I guess my mouth actually did go to the floor because he said, well, this is not the first time. Then my mouth really went to the floor. 
I don't like sharing this because it's a Donna's program, so I'm going to have to. Anyway, so uh, I let that sit for a while, and then I talked to an Al-Anon friend. That's not true either. I found out that alcoholics can play at trying to be a social drinker. Well, it turns out that I couldn't stand it any longer. And the opportunity came up one morning while we were having coffee on the patio, and I talked to my husband. And his first reaction was defense, that I was trying to control him again. I made it clear that I wasn't, that I voiced my concern and my feelings. And I have a brother-in-law that's an alcoholic and is really bad. And it scares me to think that he could be that way. And I told him that. It scares me that the last ten years could be out the door. I told him that. All I told him were my feelings. He knows my stand, what happens if he starts drinking again, because I won't put up with an active alcoholic again. He knows that. His reaction when he first told me was, well, I haven't got a problem. Have you seen any difference? Well, in truth, I can't say I have seen any difference. But I don't want to see a difference either. And I told him that. I told him my fears. And saying, I don't want to live with an active alcoholic again. And when I said I told him that I didn't want to see him like his brother, you know what he had to say? He said he didn't want that either. And I talked to him, and uh, it was okay. We dropped it and went on with our lives. Now, that was about a month ago. And what my husband chooses to do is up to him. But I did have the courage this time to say how I felt. Now, years ago, I would not have said that. Years ago, I would have stuffed it. Years ago, I would have taken it out on my kids. Now, speaking of my kids, my daughter is now 12, and my son is 15 and a sophomore in, co- in high school, not college. Please don't age me anymore than I already am. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, Michael and I have had a bone of contention from the time he could talk. And Michael and I are a lot alike. We're both strong-willed, we've got loud voices, and we're both verbal. And uh, we can clash, That's <laughs> a nice way to put it. And I was having trouble this summer with him because I was reacting. You know why I was reacting? Because I wasn't minding my own business again. I was back in there, buttoning into his. And so I, in Santa Rosa, I got a meeting in the room. <laughs> and uh, I really appreciated that because it reminded me that I had to mind my own business and stay out of his and not react to his anger. My son has the ability to push buttons I didn't know I had. You know, I uncover one button and take care of it and cover it all up and or diffuse it, I guess you could say, and he finds another one. Well, he found quite a few this summer, and I decided to detach. And I detached with love this time, instead of anger. And I must say that the rest of the summer went beautifully. It really did. 
Now, my son is a follower, not a leader, and he got into trouble on New Year's Eve, and he was arrested. And I thought, oh my God, when I got the call from the police, I went down and I said, who's he with? I thought he was down at the junior high school playing football. Well, he wasn't. He and his friend had, uh, from another high school, clear across town, had decided that they were going to go over to Denio's and they were going to see if they could steal any baseball cards. Now, they have big ambitions, these baseball cards, right? Well, I'll tell you how smart the one that planned it is. He worked at Denio's for his grandmother, and he knew about the dogs, and he knew about the security guards, and he knew everything about it, but he figured he wasn't going to get caught, which was dumb. Now, at the time, they were both only 14, And all his kid told my son was to bring an empty backpack, which he did. Now, my son had to travel on his bike clear over to this kid's house, which was clear across town. Then he had to turn around and ride his bike clear across the other way to the Niles on his bike. These kids were really smart. They locked their bikes at the front gate and hopped the fence. Really smart boys, right? <laughs> well, it comes to find out that uh, they were both arrested. The security guards found them. Fortunately, it was the security guards and not the guard dogs because Niles is open uh, on Wednesdays and then on weekends, but the rest of the time it's all locked up and the, the government business are out. Well, fortunately, they were not there that day. And uh, the security guards chased them, caught them, and called the police. Well, the police picked him up for um, malicious mischief, I guess is what they called it. Or basically, no, it wasn't. It was trespassing. They got picked up on trespassing charges for being in denial because they didn't have anything on them to show that they had stolen anything. Well, when they opened this other kid's backpack, this other kid had had a hammer in his backpack. Well, I didn't know about a lot of this until I got to the police station, and then the other mother showed up. She got called away from work and had to come. And here we were with these two boys. Well, needless to say, we told the boys they could no longer see each other and that we would talk at home. I got my son home. We got his bike. They also impounded the bikes, right? I had to put the bike in my car, drive home, and then talk to his father. Now, pre-Alanon, <laughs> I would have been a raving lunatic absolutely raving how dare this kid do that to me right that wasn't my concern my concern was was what has this poor kid done to his own life by using bad judgment what has this poor kid done to himself now the police scared him to death which I was tickled to death I really was now he had never he had uh been picked up the year before for shoplifting at Target of all places. Now my son's aspirations of being a thief are really grand. He picked up a dollar ninety-eight Lego set. Uh, that time they, I wasn't home. I was at the Allenon office in Sacramento, and they had to call my husband. My husband had to go get him. Talk about! I was pleased. <laughs> I didn't have to handle that. My husband did. My husband took the responsibility for our son and I was so tickled because when they were little he didn't 
Anyway, what had happened, we had uh, the policeman talk to us and that we would be hearing from the courts and blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay. So we got home. We talked to his father. The bike was taken away, of course. My son was grounded to his room for two weeks, and he was grounded to the house, I think, for six, is the way we worked it. And I told him, and my, his father told him, that he had to earn our trust again, because one more time, he lost it. He screwed up one more time. And we did it in a calm, loving way. Finally, I asked my son something that I don't think I was ever asked as a kid. How do you feel? How do you feel? All this time he sat there in real wooden and silent. And he finally broke down and he said, Mom, I'm scared. Now, if any of you have got a 14-year-old teenager, you'll know that they're not really good on hugs or showing personal affection at that point. They're too macho. They want to be macho. It was like I had my three-year-old son back. And I cried with him because he was scared because he screwed up one more time. This time it was pretty serious. But he was scared. When we finally heard from the courts, and I tell you, God was looking out after us. We heard from the courts, and we were to present ourselves at 8 o'clock in the morning up at the Witt Center in Auburn, which is where we went. Well, that's not where we were supposed to be, because they had screwed up and marked the wrong box on the form. We were supposed to be in Roseville. Well, the Witt Center is where he would have been sent if he had uh, been convicted of this. He got to see what it was like. He didn't like it. I was so grateful that he got to see it because he didn't want to be there. When we got to the probation office, the probation officer looked at him and wanted to know what happened. And the only thing that his father and I told him to do was tell the truth, fess up to everything. Well, the stuff that came out of my son's mouth, I mean, he didn't tell us before. But this was the plan to get the cards, which we didn't know. My son's story when we told when he told us was, uh, well, I don't know, I just did what Mike told me. Well, it turned out he knew more than what he told us. But it came all out of the probation office. The guy scared him and he said, if I see you again, you're a keeper. And my son looked at him, what's a keeper? You know, like, he was real puzzled. And a keeper means that if he sees your file again, you're automatically in juvenile hall. You're not even going to get to talk to me again. So I went... And I thought, oh, good, good. Well, he had to go to school, learn about, it was like a six-hour class up in Auburn he had to go to. We made him pay for it. We weren't going to pay for it. We didn't screw up. He did. So he had to use his own money to pay for this class he had to take. Come to find out that his cohort in crime was there, too. We found out that his parents didn't ground him. Nothing. All he had to do was show up at this class. And I said, well, where did you fit in? Because they had to name what happened at home. He says, Mom, I was the second strictest. <laughs> you know, it felt good to know that we followed through with him. They t- at the time, he was trying out for baseball. 
he didn't make the team, went out for track, and now he's out for football. He's on the JV team at the high school. But that was one of the things, stipulations for the uh, probation was the fact that he did get an active at school. And you know he's following through? He's taking two academic classes, which are college-bound classes this year. And I'm really proud of him. He's like he's done a complete turnaround. He's really, really opened up, and I'm very grateful for that. One thing I'm not grateful for is the fact that they're both going through puberty at the same time. Now, that's a joy to behold. A 12-year-old girl and a 15-year-old boy in puberty is not uh, a lot of fun. So we have our ups and downs. My husband and I do communicate better today. My family and I communicate better today. It's with the love and the friendships around these rooms that I can say that. It's the 12 steps that I know I don't talk about enough that it's helped me. The 12 traditions have helped me. The concepts have helped me. I think the thing that has made me work the hardest is the service that I've been into. I've been into service since about six months into the program, and I'm very grateful for it. I've been secretary all the way up. And like Chrissy, I'm Northern California coordinator, too. I'm your 12 stepper editor. And uh, I enjoy that very much. I've got a thing about computers and typing and making things look right in print, and I do enjoy it. But it also is my road to serenity. Because today I do have serenity. And I don't want to go back to not having serenity. It was hell. I didn't have any violence in my home. But Al-Anon has taught me that my pain is just as deep as anybody else's pain in this program. Thank you very much.